I don't think I mentioned this, but I actually started my school. So I was the founding principal. You did not mention that. No, you didn't. You did not mention that. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Brooke. And Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, speak truth to power, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. We're excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? My name is Allie Wright, and I am currently a principal at a high school in South Los Angeles. It's called South LA College Prep. And Black educators matter because we show our kids that look like us what is possible. The role models that I had that look like me made such an impact on my life. So it's like giving back. Yes, Principal Wright. Okay, so I wasn't expecting that receipt. Yes. (laughs) Now, where are you from? So I'm from Southern California. I grew up in the Inland Empire about an hour east of Los Angeles. And do you remember your K through eight experience growing up? Yeah. Oh, yes. Vividly. It wasn't until I looked back on my educational experience that this really made sense, but I actually had a biracial Black principal when I was in kindergarten. And there weren't a lot of Black folks where I grew up. And so having her, she really just like spoke into the few Black kids that were at our school, you know, told us we could be whatever we wanted and just like really took that like special interest, that special care and special love for us. And now looking back, I'm like, wow, you know, I knew that this woman who looked like me, I didn't really know what a principal did, but I did know she was the boss of all the adults that had college degrees in my life. (laughs) And that seemed pretty powerful. It is pretty powerful. Come on. So that was when you were in elementary school. What about your high school experience? Do you remember it? Yes, yes, definitely. I went to high school in a rural mountain town in Lake Arrowhead. And so it was not super diverse, to say the least. And I was one of about 10 Black students at my high school. And it was a pretty decent sized school, about like 1,000 to 1,200 kids. And so, yes, exactly. To stand out um, and be that isolated was different. I remember having teacher ask me, we got to like the one paragraph about Black church in the history textbook. And he just looks at me and he says, I mean, Ali, I bet you could tell us about it. No, he did. Dang. (laughs) And I was looking around for my ally in the room and there there wasn't nobody. So yeah, it was interesting. I like dove headfirst into as many Black spaces as I could as soon as I got to college. You walked right into that when you said like you dove into every Black experience that you could once you hit college. Did you go as an education major? Did you go to HBCU? I wasn't ready to leave California. I looked at HBCUs. I visited Howard. I have an aunt that lives in the DC area. 
And I thought about it, but I was scared to leave California. And so I went to UC Santa Barbara and one of my professors, she has a joke. She's like, after Ali's high school experience, being a black studies major at Santa Barbara was like her little own HBCU because it was. Let's go, Black <laughs> Studies major. So what was yes. your major? And like Brooke said, did you go as a declared education major or how did you find your way into education? Yeah, so I went in declared actually poli-sci. I thought I was going to go into law. And I took a poli-sci class and I was like, okay, never mind. This is not what I'm interested in. <laughs> but I took a class. It was called Critical Intro to Race Theory. And I took it because it had space to be completely honest. And I remember the professor was like known on campus for being super tough. And so there was always space in her class. And I was like, all right, well, I'll sign up. And I fell in love with the class. And so I ended up declaring a Black Studies major and an education minor. And so that's, and teaching and education had always kind of been in the back of my head. And so, yeah, seeing that connection between education and my major Black Studies drove me right back. Okay, so you also mentioned that in seeing or in taking poli-sci and you were like, no, that's not it. But then you got to the critical intro to race theory. Is this the same race theory that everybody is up in arms about now? (laughs) It is the very one. (laughs) Okay. The scary thing. Yeah, not so scary. That was the class that definitely changed my life. Yeah, I even remember the number. It was Black Studies 4 critical intro to race theory because it changed my life really opened my eyes that's amazing so is there a shared identity and connectedness that exists between you and black students as a principal and if so how did you recognize it oh that's such a good question I mean absolutely right Los Angeles is not it's not as diverse as it once was in South Los Angeles we're about 50 percent well, about 40% African-American and about like 60% Latinx. But my school, it serves South Los Angeles, but we have a bus that takes our kiddos downtown to downtown LA. And we're in a temporary facility right now. And so that's definitely put a barrier in the way of getting students access to our campus. But our school has the like largest percentage of Black kids in my network of charter schools. And so that means a lot to me, you know, to be, I'm the only sitting Black principal in our network and I'm raising a young Black son in Los Angeles. And so I just know, I know what it is to look for a school and want to know that your kid is okay, right? So I think that with my families and with my kids, that has been really essential. And my students come to me and they, they will straight up say like, we have a black principal, so we need to have this conversation with you. And that means a lot. You know, we did like a focus group. My Dean is black too. And so he co-led it with me and it was beautiful. It was just a conversation of what is it like to be a black student at South LA college prep? And we had our, our whole team listen in on the conversation and it was eye opening for me too. So I know it meant a lot to the kids. I love that with your own high school experience, you felt isolated, but now as a high school principal, you are on purpose creating space to make sure that students feel included and heard. So just the fact that you are healing generations in spite of what you experience yourself as a high school student. So you currently are serving as a principal. What positions have you held How long have you been involved in education and what has been the most impactful moment you've had over your career thus far? 
Yeah, this is my 11th year in education. And I was a teacher before I was a middle school teacher. I taught English. Yeah, it was. I loved teaching English, you know, getting students to read that book that they connect with. And even more powerful when I was able to bring, you know, diverse authors and not just the canon literature into my classroom. So being a teacher, I loved being a teacher. I had no intention of going into administration. <laughs> I moved that up question to high is school. Coming. That question is coming. How did you make that jump? But before we get there. Yes. So um, I moved to high school. I wanted to teach older kids. I wanted to have that different impact. High school was really when things started to change for me and my journey. So I started teaching ninth grade a few years into my career and I taught a ninth grade humanities course. And I did my master of arts of teaching at Brown University. I was very fortunate to get a fellowship for aspiring teachers of color. And I was able to go to Brown on a full ride because they were like doing research into the dwindling number of us, right? Yeah. And that was a transformative experience. I actually created a Black Liberation Through Music course while I was student teaching. Yes. And so it was based on a paper I wrote in a class. And we just broke down song lyrics and looked at them as what they are, as, you know, powerful words to analyze. And in my reference checks for the school that I was applying to work at, it's called USC Hybrid High. It's a partnership with USC. The principal then, he was doing my reference checks. He heard about that class I taught. and He said, please come teach that here. And so I got to create a little like baby ethnic studies class for ninth graders to take at that high school I was teaching at. And that's actually the flagship school for the network that I still serve in. That's pretty impactful. I was getting ready to say, that's probably the most impactful thing I've heard that that you took something that you didn't even think twice about doing and then it like turned into your little baby like this that's so dope and the fact that you did it with music you know that's like the universal language so yeah that's super dope thank you you know the conversation has been a little light you ready to get heavy with us (laughs) all right let's go all right so what is the state of education in black america and how did we get here I mean, dang, I wish I could say it's getting, you know, it's, I think it's getting attention. I can say it's getting attention, but I spend a lot of time thinking about how much we have failed Black kids and continue to by our education system, right? Just in the way it's created. It wasn't created for us. It wasn't created for our students. And I think there's a lot of attention being paid and a lot of work going into what to do. But I mean, we're talking about, like you said, generations of trauma, right, in education and barriers that we're still trying to overcome. And I even think about, you know, the way that charter schools have impacted that in a negative way, right? And here I am a charter school leader, but in many places, it's been a barrier for kids of color to have that access. And so I think that we've done a lot of work I think there's a lot of people doing the right work and there's a really long way to go. This is just one of the many stories and we hope to keep the conversation going. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at EEM Chicago. 
Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter and visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. And now, back to the conversation. These conversations can be really nuanced and really charged. So I appreciate the fact that you brought up the harm that is happening to Black students and that sometimes we are active participants in perpetuating that harm. And sometimes it also has to do with pure ignorance. For those who don't know the difference between like a charter school and a public school, can you just give us a high level what does it mean to be a charter school? Because charter schools are public schools, correct? Right. Yes, correct. So originally, I think like if we go back to how charter schools were created, it was almost like a think tank school, right? A small school where you would have you know less teachers and less students in order to try out you know new things in education, but not have to roll them out in thousands of students, and then be able to share what's being learned at this small school, you know, with larger schools. And so some of that is still accurate, but a public traditional school is like your neighborhood school, right? You show up, you enroll, you're a student, as long as you're within the neighborhood bounds. And a charter school, you often have a a lottery, right? Where you have to fill out an application by a certain deadline, And then it's literally luck of the lottery as to whether you're admitted. Yeah, I had the opportunity to work at a charter school in Chicago and run the lottery. So I know that system, having to recruit students to come there, having to have them fill it out and then do the lottery and then notify families and students about the outcome and what that can mean. So, yeah, very interesting. So charter schools were supposed to be think tanks, supposed to be places where educational innovation could happen. Right. Here we are now in 2023 between charter schools, private schools, public schools, all the schools. Would you say that any school is designed for children of color, specifically black students? I mean, at their core, like I couldn't tell you like a category, like this category is designed for kids of color. I don't, I don't think so. I think, you know, I've worked at a lot of amazing schools that are really breaking down the, like, to a data level. And I've seen that happen in both district schools and charter schools. Those are, that's where I have my most experience of, like, knowing folks that work at different places, right? And so I think it comes down to the people that are working there. I don't know that any of these are designed for kids of color, but I know that there are a lot of charter schools and areas where there's a lot of kids of color. Sorry for the heaviness. <laughs> We're gonna lighten it. We're gonna lighten it up just a little bit. So the definition of jubilation is a feeling of great happiness and triumph. Mm-hmm. Tell me about a time where you witnessed black jubilation within education. Ooh, that's so good. Probably our dances. I love our dances. Our kids get so excited about dances. And I don't think I mentioned this, but I actually started my school. So I was the founding principal. You did not mention that. No, you didn't. You did not mention that. So please tell us about your school. Please tell us. Yeah. So South LA College Prep, we opened our doors virtually in August of 2020 during the pandemic. I had been recruiting the whole year before and 136 babies joined us online 
I was just praying that they were going to log in and they did and they stayed with us and it was beautiful. 90 of those kiddos that logged on are still with me now as our first juniors and they'll be our first graduating seniors next year. So we have three years, well, two and a half under our belt right now. And so I mentioned that in this story because I was like, I don't know, I don't know how to throw a dance. Like this is our first dance. And so our building that we're in temporarily downtown has a a rooftop like patio penthouse. And so we got a chance to rent out that space for our kids. And so there they are in like downtown Los Angeles with a skyline view, you know, doing the wobble. It was beautiful. It was so beautiful. Look, it's so funny because when you said the dances, have you ever seen, and I, this might be showing my age, but have you ever seen The Wood? I haven't. Oh, that's Ooh, you deserve. I, you deserve to watch The Wood. Yeah. All right, I'm writing it down, y'all. Yeah. Especially in California, because that is yes. what I think about. Yes, like immediately. So, okay. Well, well, never mind. <laughs> My partner's probably going to shake his head at the fact that I said I hadn't seen it because it's like yet another thing. He's like, didn't you major in our people? Y'all. <laughs> and you know what? I was literally about to give you a chance to get your black card back. I'm about to give it to you. Black liberation <laughs> through music. Just give us a little snippet and glimpse into the paper, like the origin story behind, yeah. behind the paper and how you were able to extrapolate a curriculum and coursework out of that. Oh, yes. My favorite thing to talk about. The course was called Black Liberation, and it was an opportunity, you know, to trace Black liberation in whatever way was, you know, working for the student. And so I chose music as my medium, and I basically traced it from the 1960s to present, right? And so started with I'm Black and I'm Proud, right? James Brown. And did you all know that in the in that track, you know, they're singing in the background, I'm black and I'm proud. There it's white and Asian little little kids. It's not black kids on the track. I kid you not. Because in the sixties there wasn't any black parents that wanted their kids on that track. They were scared. Wow. Wow. Come on for the history. Okay. So so started with that. And then, you know, when I was in college, Nas was still, I mean, he still is and will forever be, but I can, you know, do a Lupe Fiasco, the show goes on. That's always what I ended the course with, because I think that's like a powerful, like, okay, here we are. And let's look at the future too. I broke it down into different categories as I was expanding it into a course. And so that each week had a theme. And so we talked about, you know, beauty in the Black community and looked at some Lauryn Hill songs. We talked about gender in the Black community, religion in the Black community, right? And did Frank Ocean's Bad Religion. Yeah, really just like a dynamic looking at different genres within Black music. And we would have a discussion group, like a a Socratic seminar on the song and they would listen to it while they're analyzing it. Yeah, it was really, it was really cool. I mean, they would come out with meanings that I was like, yeah, no, I didn't even think of that and change the way I looked at music. Oh, I love it. Cause like Brooke said, music is such a universal language and so many skills can be just lured through music. So I have to look up the show goes on and bad religion. Cause I don't know either one of those songs. Oh, yes. And you're in Chicago and Danny, you ought to be shaming yourself. I know. See, so now me and Allie both shame. We both we both (laughs) both both got homework. (laughs) See, Brooke went to an HBC. That's the difference, Brooke. 
That's the difference. difference. You went to an HBCU, you know the music and the movies. Well, so no, because Lupe is, I feel like he's a, he's a Chicago MC. So that one. And then Frank Ocean, like he's an enigma. So I just feel like everybody need like a little piece of Frank, but that's probably one of his best albums to me. The album with that song on it. Yes. It was Channel Orange, right? Channel Orange. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Let me look it up. All right, so we know that you had the ability and the opportunity to launch a school during the pandemic, and congratulations on becoming a founding principal. How has COVID-19 impacted your return to the building? Yeah, it's so interesting because I, you know, I had the opportunity to found our school because I had been a part of successful schools as a teacher, right? And I had a playbook for all the school stuff. And of course, there's still stuff that comes up and you never really have all the things you need, right? But then with COVID, it was like, I don't know how to do any of this. I don't even know how to get kids into a building safely with all of these regulations. And it felt like things were changing every day, every week. And so then I'm trying to keep up and also make sure that my team knows what's going on and they feel safe. And so I think that the biggest thing was, you know, we were together for the very first time and dealing with all these challenges. And so just trying to build a community of, you know, my vision for our school was, was love. You know, our rally cry this year is love is a verb, putting like love into action. And I was like, how do I make sure these kids know I love them as I'm like, put your mask on. Like, do you have your COVID test? Do you have your COVID vaccine card? You know, there's just so, so many more rules. Yeah. So that was, and it took up so much of my capacity, you know, it was like, how do I do anything else outside of this and make sure that the learning and the joy is happening after the safety, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like that's the story of principles everywhere. I have a homegirl who's a principal in Austin. Mm-hmm. And she was like, she turned into the lunch lady. Yeah. She did everything but drive the bus. So it was like she couldn't effectively do her the job that she set out to do because she was doing all the other ones that were just as important. So exactly, right? Yeah. yeah. We were all saying like everybody became a nurse. Yeah. You know? It was tough. Yeah. I mean, y'all know, I don't have to tell y'all, you know. Yeah. No, we don't know the way that you know, because we are not school-based. We are not school-based. So no, we we do not know. And that's why we ask the questions that we ask, because you all know in ways that we don't. Okay. And so how have you, over the last 11 years, from middle school teacher, high school teacher, high school principal, all the things, founding a school virtually, returning in person, how have you grown? over your career? Mm, Yeah. I was thinking about this question actually recently because I was having a conversation with a parent. And I think the way that, this may be an unconventional way to answer this, but I think the biggest way that I've grown in being an educator was in becoming a mom. It completely changes your worldview to know what it means that someone is trusting you with their baby, right? And I think that that has been one of the biggest things is just the way that I talk to 
my students and I have always been a radical like they know they know I didn't play but they also knew I loved them my students always knew that right but you know I'm thinking about Bettina loves we want to do more than survive and she talks about spirit murdering and I think I did a lot of I have to be hard on you because the world's hard on us especially with like my black girls and that's one thing I wish I could take back because that's been one of my biggest areas of growth is like, no, I'm going to love you 10 times as hard because I know the world is going to be hard. And so that's been, yeah, that's been my biggest growth. Again, shout out to you for acknowledging the harm that we perpetuate and taking the time to realize we don't have to continue down that pathway and we yeah. can show love and shout out to you talking about the black girls you know like we love all the children but so many times we talk about like the black boys but nobody acknowledges like no nah, I was hard on the black girls right like nobody acknowledges that no you know I mean, so often it's said right that like black mothers we love our sons but we raise, we raise our, daughters. our daughters and yep. I feel the same as was shown in education in so many folks that I've worked with and yeah so so look, since you're a vet, you know, you got 11 years up under your belt. What advice would you offer for first year educators? Ooh. Okay, so my advice for first year educators is it gets better. And remember and be grounded in your why, but also radically take care of yourself because you can only do this if you do that first. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing your story, for coming on, walking us through your educational experiences, introducing me to songs, us to books. What was the one that you just mentioned? You said, Yes, Dr. Bettina Earth. loves um, We Want to Do More Than Survive. We want to do more than survive. Yeah. Because love is a verb. So That's thank right. you for helping us anchor ourselves in that. And are there any Black educators outside of your principal when you were in elementary school? Are there any Black educators that you would like to thank? Yeah, and I'll say her name too. That was Dr. Corcoran. But I would also like to thank Dr. Ingrid Banks. She was the professor of Black Studies for Critical Intro to Race Theory. And Dr. Gay Teresa Johnson. She was one of my professors in Black Studies as well. And those three women made quite an impact on my career. And the fact that they all doctors too, like that's okay. the arsenal to have. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Thank and you. everything that you have done, it was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. Thank you thank both. You, it was a pleasure. It really was. Go watch the wood. I'm about to. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Black Educators Matter. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a Black teacher today.